Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at NBC. And listen, I don't know what uh, I don't know if you were here last week, but if you weren't, uh, let me describe to you last week. Uh, it was amazing. And last week, we saw God move. We saw uh, what happens when his word is preached. God says in his word, whenever his word is preached, he accomplishes with it what he wills. And last week, we saw God save. We saw people literally before our eyes pass from death to life. Man, I was here for most of the services, and it never grew tired when um, the invitation was given, seeing people walk, get up and walk the aisle and Accept Jesus um, as their Savior. Man, it was incredible. And today, I'm here today because I simply want to encourage you. I don't know whether you've been a Christian a long time or maybe you became one last week or maybe you're in the room right now and uh, you're simply just trying to explore Christianity. You're not sure about all of this wherever you are, man. I'm just glad that you uh, are here because today we're going to talk about a subject Uh, that really describes the Christian life. We're going to talk about something that if you understand it, if you grasp it, if you get it, this is the key to unlock and understand uh, really Christianity. Today, we're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about what it does because when you understand what it is and what it does and that God's grace has extended to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ, guess what? Your life is never the same. So today, we're going to be in Titus 2, 11 through 14. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Titus is closer to the end of the New Testament. Um, and I, I, we call it a book, but this is actually a letter penned by a, na- a man named Paul. And if you want to see a poster boy of God's grace, look no further than Paul. I don't know if you know who the Apostle Paul is and and, and his life story, but we see in the Bible that before Paul met Jesus, he was totally against him. Paul describes himself as an insolent opponent. He was a person that wanted to stamp out Christianity, and he used whatever means that he had with him in order to do that, including the fact that he was an accomplice to a murder of a man named Stephen, someone who proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can name probably someone who was the furthest away from God, you would possibly point to Paul. And yet, while Paul was running away from Jesus, guess what Jesus was doing? Jesus wasn't running away from Paul. He was running towards Paul. Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. He saved him, uh, picked him up, turned him around, and Paul became not, and then he was not a persecutor of God's church anymore. What he became is a proclaimer of the gospel. Man, I love this. Paul, um, he, he was changed by Jesus Christ, and he spent his life making Jesus known to the known world at the time. Uh, during his time, man, he met uh, uh, a man named Titus who became his protege. He left Titus in a town called Crete in order to um, start a church there, a group of people who believe uh, in Jesus Christ. And in this letter, Paul is trying to help Titus out. He's trying to help him understand how he should lead this fledgling church in a town um, called Crete and with all these negative influences around them. how, How does Titus lead the church? And the picture that Paul gives Titus, this this power for people to be transformed, he gives this incredible picture of grace. And so in this letter, Paul claims this, that the transforming work that God does in the life of people, it does not happen because we're good. 
It does not happen because there's anything lovely or acceptable within us. It doesn't happen because we strive really hard. No, the transforming work of God happens because God is gracious. God's gracious. And to be a Christian means that we never move beyond grace. Listen, grace is not something that you receive at the moment of salvation and then you graduate from or you move beyond. No, grace is the permanent residence for the Christian. We never move off the spot of grace. Every single second of the Christian life, we are in desperate need of God's grace. And the good news for you today is that our God is not stingy. That whatever grace that you need, God is willing to give you more than enough. James 4 says this, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. What do you need grace for today? Do you need grace to obey? Do you need grace to approach a difficult situation? Do you need grace to grieve well? Do you need grace to deal with your losses? Guess what? Our God in heaven gives grace. Today, we're going to read Titus 2, 11 through 14. I want to take a moment to read it. And then I want to dive into the sermon today. Here it is. Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us uh, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, let's take a moment to pray together. Let's pray. Father, we are a people here who have been changed by your grace. Every single one of us, whether we know you or not, we've experienced your grace. We experience your grace every time we look at the heavens. We experience your grace every single time we take a breath and every, uh, and every time, uh, and the time that we feel the blood coursing through our veins, the fact that we have life and the fact that we're able to experience beauty. It's all by your grace. You've given us life and beauty all to point to you. But ultimately, you have saved us in the, in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for not giving up on us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us to understand the role of grace in the Christian's life. Father, I pray that we will never be a people who think we graduate from grace. But help us to grow in grace today. God, help me, God. May we sit beneath your word like students and may we say, Father, whatever you tell us to do by the power of your spirit, we'll do it. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. And if you agree, say amen, amen. All right, everyone. So let me tell you a bit about my childhood. I grew up in a house in which music was always playing. It was always playing. We played music so frequently and, 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 and we chose different kinds of music for different days of the week that I could almost tell you what day it was by the music that I heard playing when I opened my eyes. You see, Saturdays were for old school r and I'm talking like Temptations and Osley Brothers. Anybody in here know what I'm talking about in here? But here's the thing. You would think that when I, heard that, heard, when I hear that kind of music today, that it would fill me with joy because it means that it's Saturday. But no, not in my childhood. Because Saturday was not a day of relaxation. Saturday was not a day of kicking my feet up. 
When I heard the Osley brothers and temptations, you know what it was time to do? It was time to clean. It was time to clean. Man, I remember one particular cleaning day vividly. Uh, it was a day in which I woke up to the sound of the Osley brothers. I woke up and uh, it was time to clean. My mom went to run some errands. She left my brother and I back to clean. I'm cleaning the kitchen. My brother is cleaning the bathroom and I'm scrubbing. And then all of a sudden, I hear the door to the bathroom swing hard. It hits the wall. I hear my brother uh, not walk out, but he stumbles out of the bathroom. He's clutching his chest. He's having a hard time breathing. He, 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 he stumbles towards the door. He opens the door to outside. He gets out there. He's breathing these short breaths. And then he yells at me. I'm still inside. He says, Eric, get out here. I'm wondering what's going on. And I ask him what happened. And my brother, he's no chemist. But he found out, he, he did a little chemistry experiment in the bathroom and it didn't end well for him. You see, my brother was a thorough person. He wanted to get that tub gleaming white. And he had these cleaning products and he thought, man, both of these clean, if I mix them together, it would make it more clean. That's not the case. He didn't know. You see, he understood in that moment, he experienced that missing those products, it caused some kind of chemical reaction. I can't explain it to you, but I do know this, it almost took us out. See, needless to say, we didn't miss those products again. See, matter of fact, to ensure that, what I did was I went in that bathroom after the incident and I took those two cleaning products that he missed and I put one on one side of the house and the other on the other side of the house. I separated those things because I did not want to experience that again. You see, early on, we learned that combining chemical products is dangerous. But I will, say you, I, I will tell you this, that there was another dangerous combination that I, earned, that I learned earlier on as well. The combination of a perfect God and imperfect me. What happens when a holy God comes in contact with sinful me? See, the scriptures teach us this, that God is holy, that he's perfect in all of his ways. That our God can't dwell with sin. That he's holy and just. He's rightfully angry at sin, and yet the scriptures and our lived experience tells us that we're not perfect, that we are sinful, that we fall far short of the mark. And because God is holy and just and we are sinful, the scriptures teach us that when those things touch, when God and his holiness touch the sinfulness of men, the reaction that happens is more potent than my brother's bathroom concoction. But what happens when those two touch is wrath. However, today, I'm, to, I'm here to declare to you good news. And it's this. And we heard, heard about this last week. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. You see, some of you experienced this last week. Jesus has come. He lived the perfect life. He died a death on a cross in our place for our sins. He rose again in power, proving that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and that he's victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And he did this. And he did this for us. And this changes everything. And now this is what this means. Let me go back to my analogy. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the combination of, of, of a holy God and imperfect us is no longer dangerous, but is nonetheless powerful. Stick with me. If you are willing to bring your broken self to the light of God's presence, we no longer have to experience God's wrath. That's not the reaction anymore. Because of the gospel, when God's holiness meets our confessed sin, 
When God's holiness meets our confessed sin, it produces the most beautiful and powerful reaction in the entire universe. You know what it produces? Grace. Grace. You see, in the gospel, we experience the power of God's grace. And there is nothing more powerful than the entire universe. Grace changes everything. See, in Titus 2, Paul describes this reaction. It almost seems like Paul is putting on his scientific goggles. And he's, he's, he's exploring exactly what uh, the reaction that happens when, when God's holiness meets sinful men in the context of the gospel. He's showing us what grace looks like in the life of a changed person. But today, I simply want to just describe what does it look like for a Christian to experience grace? Because for you to live a Christian life, you need to get this. Whether you're new to the faith, maybe you met Jesus last week. I want you to know the role of grace, not just last week, but right now in your life. Ten years from now, ten years from now and even to eternity. If you've been a Christian for a while, there's a temptation in you to leave grace behind in favor of white-knuckling your obedience or wallowing in guilt and shame. But today I want you to understand a bit of what it means to not lose sight of how amazing grace is. So what happens when God's power of his saving grace enters the life of a person? See, I'm going to describe it, and I want you to ask yourself, is this happening to me? Am I living in grace? So when we see the power of God's grace in, in people's lives, what do we see? I want to give you three things this morning from the text. Here's my first point this morning. When you see the power of God's grace in the life of an individual, the power of God's grace reaches deep and wide. Deep and wide. You see, there I'm talking about the scope of the reaction. When, when, when God's holiness meets sinful men in light of the gospel message, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ himself took upon himself the wrath of God, we see the power of God's grace reaching deep and wide. Let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. And what did it bring? It says, bringing salvation for all people. Man, see, I, I love this. Paul is saying, listen, uh, the grace of God showed up. The grace of God appeared. And when he says the grace of God appeared, he's talking about an event. He's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, the fact that Jesus came, like I explained before, that he, he, he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for our sin. Grace appeared fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that word appeared is not trying to say that God wasn't gracious before Jesus Christ came. See, that word appeared is a word that carries this idea of something becoming visible, more clearly visible, that before it wasn't. See, this word actually reminds me of college. You see, what I'm about to share, I do not recommend, but when I was in college and living door life, man, when you have a whole bunch of bored 18 and 19-year-olds, man, you used to do dumb stuff, right? And so on Friday nights, we had what is called fight nights. Don't recommend this. But in our dorm, if you were involved, if, if it was your week, you would put on boxing gloves, you got the shoes, the person in the, in the group that you wanted to fight, and you duped it out. And so uh, in order for you to actually do this, what everyone used to do, you made a business decision. You would scope out the room, and you would choose the person that you thought you knew you could take. 
It was my roommate's week. My roommate was up and we got in there. I was there for moral support. And um, he looked around the room to see who can take and he shows this new person. This was the day in which baggy t-shirts were in and uh, the the t-shirt clearly uh, covered what this guy was working with. My roommate thought he could take him. And that was until this new guy rolled up his sleeves and took those boxing gloves. And in that moment, my roommate experienced an epiphany. Those biceps that were once covered by this man's t-shirt were uncovered and they appeared. And my roommate looked back at me with this, feel, with this look of slight fear and nervousness. And all I did was I handed him his gloves and I said, all right, man, good luck. <laughs> you see, I thought about that instance when I thought about the fact that the grace of God appears. Because listen, our God is eternally gracious. Even in the Old Testament, it describes God. So many people say, oh, the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. Not true. When the Old Testament God is described in multiple places, God is described in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God has always given us better than what we deserve. And yet when Christ appears on this earth, like this guy at this, like that new guy in fight night, it was God rolling up his sleeves. You see, in the gospel, we see most clearly the power of the gospel to save. And in this verse, we see the breath of that power. Look at verse 11 at the end. I already read it, but I'll read it again. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let me explain what it means there. That verse is not teaching that all, that all people experience salvation. It's not teaching universalism. It's not uh, teaching that all roads lead to heaven because ultimately we know from the scriptures and from observing life that there are people who live in this life that will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not saying that all people are saved, but what this verse is saying, this, is that the grace of God can reach down and save any kind of person. Any kind of person. See, right before verse 11, let me describe this. In, in, in the verses 1 through 10, Paul describes all these different kinds of people and what the grace of God, the kind of behavior there, the grace of God should produce in their lives. We see in verses 1 through 10, different kinds of people. People of different ages, different genders, different relationship statuses, and, di- and different job situations. And he talks about how they should behave. And in this text, 11 to 14, he's furthering that thought. He's pretty much saying this, listen to me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you do. And it doesn't matter what you've done. The grace of God is able to reach down from heaven and reach you. And this is good news. And I'll put it even differently. And this goes along with the point that I was trying to make. God's grace goes deeper than the darkest of sin. And it goes as wide as the ends of creation. To know God's grace is to know that it is powerful to reach a people deep and wide. And this is what this means for us today. Uh, let me try to bring it home and let me try to understand, help you understand what the power of God, uh, this point, will produce in your life. You see, when we understand the power of God's grace, you know what this produces in us? Resilience. Why? Because God's grace shows us this. It shows us that there are no lost causes. The people in your life that you think, oh, that person will never receive Jesus Christ. 
See, the grace teaches, see, when we understand the power of grace, guess what we'll do? We won't give up on people. Who are you tempted to give up on today? Listen, when we experience the power of God's grace, we understand this. There is absolutely no one outside of the reach of God. Why? Because you weren't outside the reach of God. You weren't. Do you believe that? When we experience the grace of God, we realize that everybody, no matter where you live, no matter what you've done, anybody can get in on this. Now, what that creates in us is a desire to share. We experience that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for our people. You know what we'll do? We'll share the gospel with all people. We'll share the gospel with people in the depths of sin, and we'll share the gospel to the ends of creation. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Here's my second point today. So I share with you the, 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 the power of the gospel when we observe that reaction of when God's holiness meets human sin in light of the gospel, we see the gospel spread deep and wide. It's powerful. But also the power of God's grace changes us from the inside out. Not only does God's grace go deep and wide, it changes us from the inside out. It changes everything about us. Look at verse 12. Paul continues talking about the grace of God and we see here, that not only does God's grace make a way for people to be saved, God's grace also gives us the power to live new life. It says right here that God's grace trains us, training us. See, other versions say teach or instruct, but I love the word train because in the 21st century America, we tend to think that when someone teaches us or someone instructs us, it only, it only produces a, a, a knowledge change. When we think about the word train, train applies a transformation beyond mere knowledge. And in this text, there's a complete transformation taking place. Man, I, I love HGTV shows when they go in and, and they change up the house. Something like this is taking place. Grace is training us. We don't gain a knowledge of the gospel, then go ahead and live like we want. See, grace is not us saying that, God, since you give grace, I'm just going to go out here and live the way that I used to live. Hear me today. You may be tempted to think that, oh, because God has forgiven me, I can presume on the grace of God. I can just get out here and do what I want. I can just sin because God will forgive me. No problem. But I'm going to tell you, if that is your heart posture, what you are showing is that you don't understand grace. Because let me tell you today, grace is not the permission to sin. Grace is the power to obey. Grace is not the permission to sin. Grace is the power to obey. And because of God's grace, we are free from the bondage of past sin. You are made new. Romans 6 says, shall we sin so grace may abound? By no means. Guess what you are now? You are dead to sin. You no longer have to go to the captive of your past. We're free from the bondage of our past life. And guess what we are? We are adopted into the family of God. Here's the beautiful thing. God doesn't just call you his son and daughter. Yes, yes, you are declared his son and daughter by nature of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You are justified. But the rest of your life, God, by the work of his Holy Spirit, he trains you to become the kind of person that takes on the family traits of a son and daughter of God. See, that same grace that saves you is a grace that shapes you into the image of 
sons and daughters. See, when I think about family traits, you see, my family, we have some weird, we have a weird family trait. Uh, the weird family trait is this. So because of a condition that runs through our family, many people on my mom's side of the family, we can't straighten our arms all the way. We can't lock our elbows. I can't straighten my arm all the way. And so we kind of use this as kind of a running joke because uh, whenever somebody in our family does something that is uh, uh, embarrassing or maybe someone in, in, in our family uh, do, uh, uh, just does something that's, uh, that's crazy, uh, we will tell them to straighten their arms. And the reason why we say that is that we just want to make sure that you are part of the family. And we use it as a joke, and uh, I don't mean to be serious with that, but in the text, the people of God assume the family traits. It says the family of God are people, in verse 12, that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. You see, grace teaches us to control ourselves and our passions, the passions of our former life, and it teaches us to live in an upright way before others, in a just way before other people, and godly in our relationship with God, and self-controlled in our relationship to us. You see, God's grace trains us like this, but let me tell you something. Training is not easy. I know. I've quit CrossFit three times. I don't like to say quit. Uh, matter of fact, let me take that back. I went on a hiatus. I went on a hiatus because CrossFit is hard. It's not easy reshaping habits. And I'll be honest with you. To leave the habits of your old life and to be trained and shaped into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ, it's, it's not easy. For too many of us, we, we simply think that the Christian life should be easy. And I think a lot of that comes from, um, for many of us, we've assumed our culture's value of authenticity. See, our culture defines authenticity way differently than a Christian would. See, our culture defines authenticity as the ability to align your life with your deepest desires. But then the question that we should ask is this, is that what if you desire things that are wrong? You see, out there, there are authentic criminals, authentic serial killers who are operating out of their deepest base desires. You see, there are things that we've all done that felt good, and then in the end, it was totally wrong. That's not what the Bible means by authenticity. When the Bible talks about authenticity, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to live out of our deepest desires. No, the Christian life calls authenticity this, living in accordance with your new identity. Who you really are is not who you once were. Who you really are is that you are a son and daughter of God. You've been captured by God's grace and you're never the same. And living out this identity won't always feel natural. It's going to require some effort. Grace-driven efforts. One theologian put it this way. He said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Listen, because of God's grace, we no longer have to earn God's approval. You're not working for more grace. You're not working for God's approval. You're not working for God to love you. I think about my own life. I think about my kids. And I think about when my oldest son was six months old and he was keeping us up all kinds of night. It would be sad and foolish of me to look at my son and say, hey, listen, son, if you can string together eight hours of sleep tonight, then I'll call you my son. 
That would be sad, and, and that's not right. And in that case, we would not have Eli today. We would not have him. No, listen to me today. The grace of God, the grace of the Christian life is God making you a son and daughter through the gospel of Jesus Christ all by his grace, by nothing that you've done, and then he gives you the motivation to live that way. The effort doesn't come from striving to be a son and daughter of God, but because, of your, because your new identity is son and daughter of God. We don't exert effort for grace. We deserve effort from grace. Grace is the power. It changes us from the inside out. And here's one question you may ask. Eric, that sounds well and good. How exactly do we do that? Well, one of the ways in which we, which we experience this kind of grace and one of the things that we see in the book of Titus is the grace that God gives us in the context of the local church. Uh, one pastor, I think actually David said this, he, he said the church is a spiritual gymnasium for growing in grace. And we see the presence of the church all over this book of Titus when he talks of, before he talks about the grace of God appearing. We see in um, chapter one how Paul tells Titus to set up pastors, and pastors are meant, uh, pastors are leaders of God's church who are meant to teach people the word of God and to model what growth in grace looks like. He also describes as well in verses one through 10 of this chapter the larger family around us and how different kinds of people are changed. You see, one of the things that, uh, if you're trying to work out, and I didn't take this advice, but uh, one of the things that people encourage you to do if you're trying to make a habit, it's to work out with other people. Because when you work out with other people, guess what? You are more likely to keep up that habit. You'll continue. Here's the thing, the same in the spiritual life. God in his grace has given us the gift of pastors and brothers and sisters in the context of the local church to push us on. To be a Christian means that you never train alone. His grace is training us. And the church is a spiritual gymnasium in which our God is training us. And if you are new to the faith, listen to me, one of the greatest things that you can do to ensure your growth is to make sure that you connect with the healthy local church and lock arms with brothers and sisters in Christ who would encourage you to keep going even when it's hard. You see, God's spirit among God's people changes us from the inside out. Here's my third point. Here's my last point. Not only does the grace of God, um, the, power, uh, the grace of God go deep and wide, not only does the grace of God change us from the inside out, here's the thing, the power of God's grace it points us forward and back. Let me explain to you what I mean. Look at verse 13. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us of all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, guys, I don't know if you know this, but hope in your life is a powerful thing. Every human being on planet Earth, what keeps you going, what, 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 what makes you oriented towards the future is hope. We run on hope. I was thinking about this concept of hope, and um, I, I was thinking about this more because I read this book uh, called uh, When the Breath Became Air. Or, yeah. So this book is titled, uh, uh, this book is titled that and is written by a, a, a surgeon. His name is Paul uh, Kalanithi. Uh, this book was a New York Times post uh, bestseller, and it was actually published posthumously. 
and describes Paul's life. See, Paul had endured 20 years of the best education in the world, all with the hopes of becoming a, a, a surgeon. It seemed like that he was on the, uh, the, the, the verge of his hopes being accomplished. He was recently married. His, his wife was pregnant with a young child. He had all these hopes and dreams at his fingertips. And then he received a diagnosis that was kind of like a record scratch. And the diagnosis was cancer. This diagnosis was advanced and terminal. And this diagnosis caused Paul to think more about the future and more about the nature of hope. And he said these two quotes, and I thought about more about this concept of hope after I read this. He said this. He said, medical training is relentlessly future-oriented. It's all about delayed gratification. You're always thinking about what you'll be doing five years down the line. And then after that, he describes how his diagnosis affects the way that he views the future. And here's what he says. He says, most ambitions are either achieved or abandoned. Either they belong to the past. He says, either, either way they belong to the past. The future, instead of the latter towards the goals of life, flattens out into a perpetual present. Money, status, all the vanities the preacher of Ecclesiastes described hold so little interest. A chasing after the wind, indeed. See, what I appreciated about his honesty here is that he's actually describing some of the hopes that we all hold. See, to hold hope, to have hope is not a bad thing. To have hope is actually what we run on. I bet you have similar hopes that he had. We all hope for a credible family. We all hope for a good job. We all hope for uh, resolutions to the problems that we uh, face. None of these are bad, but here's the issue with those hopes. And, and Paul Kalanithi experienced this. Every single one of the hopes that you are waiting on this side of eternity, however good, are swallowed by the grave. Not one of them is secure. And I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm not trying to be depressing. What I'm trying to do is to help you see God's grace because God in his powerful grace actually gives you a better hope. Your hopes and your dreams do not have to stop when you flatline because we have a Savior that conquered the grave. He's returning soon. <laughs> Listen, God in his grace has given you a hope like none other. Our hope in Jesus survives the grave. And this is such news in a world in which our hopes are so fragile. Here's what this all means. You see here in verse 13, it's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And um, when you look at the New Testament, it describes the second coming of Jesus Christ a lot. See, in the New Testament, it's mentioned over 300 times, and that factors out to maybe once every 13 verses. But here's the thing. When, when, when the Bible talks about the second coming, many people think that that's an indication to speculate about the second coming. Right to try to figure out when he's coming and, 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 and to do all that. But listen, when the Bible describes the second coming of Jesus, it, it, it's not telling us that in order for us to speculate more about what his coming is going to be like or when it's going to happen. Jesus said himself that, 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 that he doesn't know the time or the hour when he was on earth. Listen, the point of bringing up the second coming is not for you to, 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 to fast forward to the future. The point of the second coming is for you to live better now. <laughs> The point of the second coming 
is for you to understand that there is good works to accomplish now. In other words, here's the point that I'm trying to make. When God's grace points you towards an indestructible future hope in Jesus, it then points you back to live differently now. See, this is why I don't think it's an accident. At the end of verse 14, after we talk about waiting for our blessed hope, what does that waiting produce? Look at the end. It says that that, that that Jesus purifies for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I'm sure you heard the phrase before, that person is so heavily minded that they are no earthly good. But this text actually shows us that that's not true. Those people who are most heavily minded are the most earthly good because the, the hope and the resurrection actually produces a people who are zealous for good work. What does the hope and the resurrection produce? What does the hope and the second coming produce? A zeal to do good work. See, as I close out this sermon, the, the band could go in and come back out. Here's a question for you. If someone described you, would they say that you are eager to do what is good? Would they say no matter what happens, no matter what hardships, no matter what situation that you are in, you are a person who is eager to do good works. You are a person that is eager to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a person that's eager to serve your neighbor. This is what grace produces. And I think our answer to this question helps us understand something. The degree to which we hope in Christ's return is directly related to our zeal to do good right now. Let me explain as I close. Listen, when your hope is solely on things in this life, you will only do good up until the point where your hope in this life is threatened. Let me explain. Say say your biggest hope is to be promoted at work. You may do good things, but you won't do the good thing that might threaten your promotion. (laughs) Because that's the greatest hope. So because that's your hope, you may participate in cutthroat office politics. You may try to, try to push down uh, your, your, your colleagues in the eyes of your boss. Why? Because they're threats to your greatest hope. Let me keep going. Say you're in a, in a relationship and say your greatest hope is to get married. Listen, you may do good things, but you might not do the good thing that would threaten your hope in marriage. You might give in to your partner's attempts to cross physical boundaries because you don't want them to reject you. You don't want to risk that relationship. That's your hope. Listen, these examples are meant to show that when hopes are only in this life, you will only do good up until the point where your hope is threatened. And listen, one of the reasons why we disobey the commands of God is because we don't believe that obeying him will give us more blessing than if we don't. There's a reason why Paul calls this the blessed hope. Blessed, we see in the New Testament, it's another word for happy. And when we obey, I'm not saying that we earn the return of God. I've been saying this whole sermon that all of what God does in our life is all by grace. We get all this by grace. But here's the thing. Your obedience does cause you to anticipate the return of Jesus even more. And guess what? That makes you most happy. Because Jesus' return is better than whatever we can hope in. His hope will not disappoint. His hope, this hope 
would not be separated from us because of the grave. He's conquered the grave. It's kind of like this. I don't, I don't know if you've, and we'll close on this. I don't know if you've ever been a kid on Christmas Eve. And you're anticipating the next day. You can't sit down. You can't sleep because you, you're anticipating all the, all the gifts that are under the tree, all of the, uh, all of the things that you begin to experience, the joy of Christmas. If you've experienced that, you understand this concept, how anticipation for the future can bring joy in the present. You're giddy. Here's the thing. It's not wrong to have hopes in this life. I hope you do. But it's only when our hope is in the return of Jesus is that when you are a, it's when you're able to joyfully and zealously do good even when it's hard. And God's grace gives you the ability to do that. NBC, I just want to encourage you today to simply just do this. Live in grace. The grace of God saves us. The grace of God empowers us to live new lives. The grace of God points us to our greater hope. May we never be a people who feel like we outgrow our need for grace. Grace is the air that we breathe. Live in it. Let me take a moment and pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the gift of grace. Grace, your unmerited favor to people who are undeserving of it. Father, we thank you that the ultimate expression of grace, it it isn't the things that you give apart from you. The ultimate expression of grace is your willingness to give yourself to us. You drew near to us, even, even even a sinful people through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for that. Father, teach us what it means to live in grace. Teach us what it means to come to you for the strength to live this life. Father, help us not to be a people who go prideful in our relationship to grace as if we need to earn your approval. Help us to be a people who um, resist condemnation, who are so beat down by shame that we declare, wow, Jesus, you may have forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Both of these are born out of pride. Father, forgive us for thinking that our standards for holiness are somehow higher than yours. Thank you that if Jesus has come and paid for our sin, we no longer have to wallow in guilt and shame. Help us to know grace. We love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.